Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. We're back in our normal uh, setup. Last two weeks, Sean had been uh, sharing with us his lesson. He's been gracious enough to teach for us on the last two Sundays. Um, so I was able to get a break. <laughs> so we're back in the saddle. Um, and today we're going to be talking about a little bit different topic, kind of deviating a little bit, but uh, hopefully it'll be edifying. Uh, be sure to check us out. Just as a reminder, check us out and other uh, good reform podcasts at reformpodcasts.com. Uh, check us out there and you can find us on other podcasting platforms such as Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, etc. With that, I'll hand it over to Sean and he'll introduce our topic. Yeah. So today we're actually going to be talking about um, translations and this will be a bit um, bit broad. We're not necessarily, we will go into some specific translations, but we want to just talk about um, what makes a good translation of the Bible. Uh, we won't dive into the text issue necessarily. We're just purely talking about how, how should one approach translation of the Bible. And uh, this is actually a really important topic, right? If we, if we believe that this is the word of God, right, we want to make sure that it's accurately represented both to us and to the, the people that we're proclaiming the word to. This is, um, we don't want to uh, mess this up um, God tells the Israelites in uh, Deuteronomy that um, they weren't to uh, add to his word, uh, the word that he commanded, nor were they to take away from it. And ultimately, if you're um, giving a poor translation, intentionally or unintentionally, you've added and removed from the word of God. So add or removed from the word of God. So we want to make sure that our uh, uh, our translations are good and solid. So, um uh, to quote from the uh, London Baptist Confession, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith on this topic, um, uh, chapter one, paragraph eight, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to all nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in, in, in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures, they may have hope. So here we confess that while the original language of the scriptures were Greek and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, but Aramaic is a related language to Hebrew. Um, uh, while they were originally uh, in that, we are to translate them so people can understand that. Uh, we are not to force everybody to learn Koine Greek and uh, uh, biblical Hebrew, that um, we need to have translations for this. And you can even see that principle um, in um, 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians, Paul is, is saying that it's it's good if um, you know somebody speaks in a tongue, but you need somebody to interpret that. Otherwise, it's useless. It's worthless. So if I go, come reading my Greek New Testament and nobody can understand that, it needs to have an interpreter. It, it, something needs to um, it needs to be translated in a language that the people understand, so that they can benefit from it. Otherwise, there's no benefit from it. And um, this is historically uh, the the position of uh, Protestants. Um, to quote from the uh, 1611 KJV preface, preface, 
Uh, many men's mouths have uh, been open a good while and yet are not stopped with speeches about the translation so long in hand, or rather pursual of translations made before, and ask, what may be the reason, what the necessity of the employment? Hath the church been deceived, say they all this while? Hath her sweet bread been mingled with leaven, her silver with dross, her wine with water, her milk with lime? That is, do we condemn the ancient? In no case. But after the endeavors of them that were before us, we take the best pains we can in the house of God. And he, he said, being provoked by the example of the learned that lived before my time, I thought it my duty to say whether my talent and the knowledge of the tongues may be profitable in any measure to God's church, lest I should seem to have labored in them in vain, and lest I should be thought to glory in men, although ancient, above that which was in them, uh, thus St. Jerome may be thought to speak. So essentially what I think he's getting at there is, you know, there's the Roman Catholic response to Protestants saying, oh, why are you giving up the Vulgate? This is the translation of the church. Um, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be, um, when you, when you make a new translation, you're essentially denigrating those of old. And uh, the, the response of the KJV translators is no, we, we believe this is beneficial to the people of God. Um, uh, so with that, I think I will hand it back to you there, Dan. Sure. Uh, I guess just some comments uh, following up on that. Um, you know, you, you were talking about that we shouldn't force people to study Koine Greek or Hebrew and that there should be a way for us to understand it. It's interesting is the writers of our confession quote 1 Corinthians 14 in this, uh, in this paragraph um, or, or in relation to it as a proof text, which clearly Paul laid out um, standards for when people were speaking in tongues and they received a word from God that they weren't to, you know, they, that there was somebody who was to translate what was coming so that everyone could understand, not only for believers, but for unbelievers. It, uh -huh. So it didn't look like a, you know, a horse and pony show. It didn't look wild. It didn't look bizarre. Um, so, yeah. So having God's word in the vulgar language is important. And if, if it's not in that language, then how are you going to know uh, what God requires of you. And it, this was, I think, one thing in the Reformation that we saw um, that was emphasized was taking the scriptures out of the exclusive hands of the church and getting it into the hands of the people. And even before the Reformation with uh, like Tyndale and trying to translate the Bible into English um, and the problems that he faced. I think you mean Wycliffe, but yeah. Oh, Wycliffe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Tyndale, I'm sorry, I think 16th century, getting it backwards. Um, but yeah, having the scriptures in a tongue that people can understand is vital because uh, how are we going to know what God requires of us? And, and like Paul says in Romans 10, how are they going to know unless they heard or, or uh -huh. hear without a preacher? Well, you have to be able to communicate God's word in a way that people can understand. Catholic Church didn't do that. The mass was done in Latin. Not many people knew Latin. Um, so people did not really know how to discern between truth and error because there were people who couldn't read. The scriptures were not made widely available to the population, um, so it created problems. So it's it's very important to uh, to uh, translate the scriptures into a tongue that people can understand. And then going with the King James uh, preface here, what you know, you said that the authors it, it's almost like they're getting pushback because maybe um, you know at least in the Reformation that the Latin Vulgate was the standard. Um, King James only has fallen to the same problem. You know, well, the King James is the only Bible, and then when other uh, valid translations come along, um, you it, it's kind of the same premise. Like, well, they 
Reformation was saying that the, the Latin Vulgate was not the only viable translation. And then uh, with the King James Bible, which is a product of the Reformation, then became uh, the absolute standard of King James only. And then when other viable translations come along, they use the same arguments that Rome did. Um, and it seems that the King James authors are kind of speaking out against that kind of idea. Here. We're not putting down what was done before, um, but we are essentially improving on or, or providing uh, a translation that can be helpful um, without completely negating the Latin Vulgate or any other translation that came before. So just saying those things in, in passing. Yeah. To your, to your, your Rachmanite um, King James only as they wouldn't even see the value in the original languages. Like we would, we would yeah. make it, <laughs> make a distinction that, you know, um, your translation is helpful and it is to be received as the word of God, but the final, um, the final judge arbiter, whatever you want to call it, um, is actually the original language text. So we should yep. always, if possible, go to, uh, back to the original language text, because even though you can have an accurate translation, there might be some sort of nuance in the original language that just doesn't come over. Um, it's, it's not 100% able to come over into the, the target language. So, yeah, you, you do see that with some King James only as who will say that the, um, that English was the inspired language essentially. And that Greek and Hebrew really don't have any play into what that translation is actually trying to communicate. So yeah, that's, that's a dangerous place to be. Um, but moving on to our, our next section here, what in, in talking about different Bible translations, there are really, uh, we would say three different types of, of translations and maybe there might be more you could come up with, but um, Tim Challies was actually helpful in kind of formulating this, but there, I think that Bible translations fall into generally these three categories. You have paraphrastic word for word and thought for thought. A paraphrastic would be more paraphrasing what the author of a particular passage or book is saying, trying to make it, I think more applicable toward modern times um, in trying to be as close to the modern language as possible in moving away from thought for thought or even and especially word for word. Um, I think an example of this would be like the New Living Translation. Um, listen to the, the tagline of it is easy to understand, relevant for today. You can see the, the idea is, behind it is to make it more relevant to the modern era. And I I don't know really what they mean by that, but it's not a good choice of words either way. But uh, this is really more of a paraphrastic um, rendering of the scriptures. Yeah. Well, as someone who actually reads the KJV, I can't help but roll my eyes a little <laughs> at relevant to today. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It That carries some negative connotations, which you have. If you're going to say that, you better clarify clearly what you mean by that. Um, and then, of course, uh, on the... Op the full end of the spectrum of paraphrasing would be the Message Bible, which we're going to talk about more today. But an example, we can see Psalm 101.3, I refuse to take a second look at corrupting people and degrading things. You can see in that type of language, it's trying to generalize what is being said. It's trying to uh, very much paraphrase the author's, um, the author's intent and not even go for a thought for thought, but more just generalize what is trying to be communicated. Uh, then you have word-for-word -word translations, and these are more literal translations. Um, the at uh, the 
full end of the spectrum with that would be Young's literal translation, which again, we're going to talk about today. This is more of a difficult translation. It tries to render the text in English as literal as possible with the original text, although it doesn't do that very well. Uh, but it tries to be as literal as possible, staying away from thought for thought and certainly not uh, paraphrastic. Um, so that's the opposite end of the spectrum. And then you have word for word translations, which kind of, uh, I guess, are fall on the more word for word side, but could also utilize some thought for thought. Um, you have NKJV, the King James Bible, the ESV, the NASB. These are examples of more word for word translations. Um that are, are trying to be more true to what the text is actually saying rather than trying to convey a general thought or paraphrase the text. Um, example is from the NASB 95, uh, Psalm one, the same passage as above, Psalm 101.3, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. You can see the, the stark contrast between how the message renders it, tries to paraphrase it, and the NASB is trying to capture the literal words of what the author actually wrote and not necessarily trying to communicate what their, their thought is in a more clear way. Um, and then you have finally thought for thought translations. Um, an example of this would be the NIV, the new international version. Um, it tries to, it tries to make a con a balance between paraphrastic and word for word, I would say, but it's more thought based. It's communicating what is the author's, meaning in the text um, and not necessarily what did the author actually write down word for word. Um, and this I think is trying to make it more readable or, or make it a certain passage understood right off the bat. A couple of examples, one is Psalm 1013, I, uh, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do, I'll have no part in it. Um, so it reads differently than uh, the NASB or the KJV in that it's not quoting exactly uh, what the author says. It's capturing more of what the author's meaning. The author's meaning, and I think the context bears this out, it is the David is saying, I'm not going to look with approval on anything that is vile. I'm not going to give approval to evil things. I'm going to reject them. Um, another example is Psalm 51.5 in the NIV. Uh, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This reads differently from other translations like the, the King James or, or the more word for word. Um, and, and Sean, I can't remember the exact wording and I should have put it on our notes here. Uh, but I think it reads uh, that in sin, my mother conceived me um, or something to that effect. I want to say it's in sin did my mother conceive me, but I, I didn't look it up prior to this. Yeah, yeah, something something of that nature. Um, but it's trying to capture the idea of what David is saying, that he's saying that I've my spiritual condition, I was sinful at birth and sinful from when I was conceived, um, as opposed to just the, the literal reading, which, you know, if you don't understand the context of what is being said, could be taken to mean that his mother had, bore him in sexual morality as opposed to him talking about his sinful condition. So it's trying to bring out the thought of what is being communicated here. So those are the three different categories that Bible translations would uh, probably fall under. Um, there's Again, there's probably other categories you can put in here, but I think this kind of captures the spectrum of Bible translations. Now, moving on to what makes a good Bible translation? 
Um, you know, you know, the Bible itself doesn't necessarily bring out in it. There's, there's no pastor scripture that says, okay, your Bible must be translated X, Y, and Z. It doesn't. Um, but given certain principles in scripture on the clarity of scripture, um, that God has preserved his word, um, that people need to hear the word of God. And, and as we talked about in Romans 10, that the word of God needs to be preached to those, uh, in order for them to, for people to be saved, they need to hear God's word in a way they can understand it. And clearly, um, I think you can gather the following principles that one, a Bible translation should be as close to the original languages as possible. You know, it should render what the author is actually saying. Um, and I think that this is helpful because uh, it helps us to fall, not try, not try to impose our own views onto a text uh, where we shouldn't. So trying to stay the close to the original language as possible, but counteracting that there should be a rendering of the text in a way that is still readable. So you're not uh, reading uh, words that are confusing or that might uh, word orders that might be um, hard to follow. Um, so that there should be a readableness to it, but while still staying true to the original text. Um, and it shouldn't simply paraphrase the text because meanings of words can be lost in that way. Paraphrasing is not necessarily a bad thing, but um, when someone is trying to paraphrase, it's easy to lose what the author actually said because there's a lot of interpretation going on in the person actually paraphrasing it. Uh, you're having to interpret what this person said and pull it out and then put it in your own words um, instead of just rendering what the author said, um, or at least in uh, the best way possible. So those are the principles I think that can be helpful and that we should uh, render Bible translations in. Yeah, just commenting on that a little bit. Oftentimes when you're when you're doing a Bible study, you want to see like, oh, this word is used here. Let me go and see other spots where that word is used. And if you're reading a paraphrase, that word might exist in the uh, in the original language. It might be helpful for your understanding. But in the paraphrase, it's just glossed over because they paraphrased it. They didn't um, put the, the literal words in there. And just going back to what Dan said, we want to stick as close to the words that were in the original as is possible. Obviously, as we'll get into, um, it's not 100% possible to do that, but you want to stick as close to the words as possible. Um, every time you make a, um, a paraphrase or what you think the thought for thought is, you're leaving yourself open to, to be wrong, right? Uh, it's like, oh, I think the, the, uh, this is what the text is being gotten at, and it's, it's not correct. Um, and for me personally, I don't want the, I don't want to know what the translator thought the text was saying. I want to know what the text says and I will make the determination about what, it, what it's saying. Right. Um, cause I've, I've seen, I've read through Bibles frequently and come to passage. I'm like, you know, I know this isn't quite right. There's there, they put a, an interpretation on here and I don't agree with it. Um, and as much as possible, I want to see what the the literal words were um that the uh, the writer of that particular scripture were so i can make the determination myself what was being said i don't want to ha uh, have run through um i don't want that to have run through a translation committee and ultimately that um gets into another category of what makes a, a good translation and it's the theology of the translator um, we're, we're, we're presuppositionalists. We recognize there's no such thing as a, a neutral worldview, essentially. There's no way that a, a translator can be 100% perfectly neutral. Um, and we as Christians wouldn't want like some sort of atheist secular worldview translating our Bible. We would want a believing 
uh, worldview translating it. Um, and I have an example here. I'm going to pick on the NIV here for a little bit. Um, this is from Romans 1, 3 through 4 in the NIV. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So um, if you're not familiar with the NIV, that wording might immediately strike you as being very odd. What do you mean he was appointed the son of God by his resurrection? Um, the other translations will uh, render it something to the effect of declare. I think the NIV and only one other translation maybe had it as appointed, but the other translations have it as declared, that he was declared the son of God in power. And ultimately that's going to get down to what is your theology? Does your theology say that Jesus Christ or the, the second person of the Trinity has always been the son of God? Or do you have an adoptionist view? Um, because obviously this, the NIV uh, rendering leaves yourself open for an adoptionist view. And actually uh, Bart Ehrman uh, in his book, um, I think it was How Jesus Became God, um, uses this as an argument to show that early Christians had a, a lower Christology, that Jesus was a, a man and became God. So um, the theology behind it, and ultimately the word, uh, underlying word, which I, I can't remember what the word is now off the top of my head, but it could be translated either way. And in fact, there's somewhere in Acts where it is translated as um, appointed, and that's perfectly fine. There's no controversy over that. But the word could be translated either way. So when you're coming to a text, your theological presuppositions are going to influence how you, you translate that. Should it be um, appointed? Did Jesus become the son of God? Or should it be he was declared because he was already the son of God? It's just being made known who he was. So that's important. And you will see um, there's other issues um, as we progress or in, in the modern era, there's other issues coming upon us now. Like there's a big push for gender neutral language in mm -hmm. Bible translations. Um, so you also don't want cultural uh, movements or artifacts to sway your, your, your Bible translation, because right now we're in the midst of, you know, um, a whole gender neutral, or I don't even know what to call it. This, this, this movement, um, this cultural, um, fad, I guess you could say, cause I don't think it will last forever, but, um, there's this push for gender neutral language and we don't want uh, our Bibles to be swayed by every wind of culture. We want them to, um, you know, be as culturally removed from fads as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's very important to understand. And we're going to see that in a second, as we talk about the background of the message and the passion translations that theology does frame and can frame how you translate um, a text. Um, and going back to what Sean was saying, we want to be as close to the original languages as possible so we can make our own interpretation of text based on what the text says. That's exactly, I do think that um, there are, I do think that thought for thought can be helpful at times for more difficult passages as long as uh, that is derived from the text. But generally speaking, we want to be uh, as literal as we can because uh, it, yeah, yeah, we want to be as literal as we can. For me, I will say that I would rather have a very, well, I would rather have a literal, um, literal leaning Bible and then look up a commentary on a section if I was confused, than I would have a uh, uh, thought for thought or a paraphrase simply because 
the the only time that I, I need to look uh, look it up is for certain sections. I don't want to be reading through my Bible and not knowing, okay, this section is, you know, is going off in this direction or that direction. So I'd almost yeah. rather that. Yeah, it's better to do the the more literal. Absolutely. Yep. I just think it can be, it, maybe not for the uh, the immature, but maybe for the more mature, it could be helpful. Or if you're if you're trying to expound upon a passage, you might say, okay, here's what you know. One translation says it's more literal, and here's you know a a different translation that carries more of the thought that might be able to help explain it. But yeah, kind of going back to the the comparison aspect of it, you want to know where where do these passages go, and we can. Uh, and we can kind of see that for ourselves rather than the translation um, telling us exactly where we should go. Cause it could be wrong. It could be wrong. And we might just take it at face value um, instead of simply uh, working those things out for ourselves. All right. So looking at the, some of diving into more of the actual translations, we're going to look at three Young's little translation, the passion and the message Bible. Um, and there's certainly others we could look at, but uh, we wanted to pick on these three. Um, Young's literal translation, we think, is too far on the spectrum of the literal side, where it doesn't render things as clearly as it could. And we're going to show some examples of that. And then you have the, the passion and the message, which are more paraphrases, the message being the other end of the spectrum on the paraphrastic side. Um, but before we do that, I want to give some background on these uh, these translations. And we're going to start with the Message Bible, and I'm going to play a couple clips from Eugene Peterson, who is the uh, author of the Message Bible, um, and see what his thoughts on why did he write it, and what were some of the theological implications going into it, and then we'll talk about uh, the Passion. I'm ready. Uh, because I wanted to get the language of scriptures into an equivalent. See, both the Hebrew and Greek languages, they were not literary languages. Uh, if you were, if you wrote, if you were a philosopher or a poet or something else, you wrote in a different level of language but in the greek and in the hebrew both these are storytelling languages they're street languages um, and much a lot of the words that occur in the bible don't occur in any other in the hebrew or greek language because they were never written they were always always voiced so when i realized that then i started taking more liberties with myself, myself. And, uh, and that's what came out. I just, I, I really didn't, I didn't think I was doing something that extraordinary. Um, but I knew I was doing something for my congregation that was extraordinary. They were, they were listening to this for the first time, as if for the first time. So they liked it. Oh yeah. They got it. Yeah. All right. So already you can see some some problems, even from a historical level. You know, Eugene Peterson is he's coming at this with, OK, the. I think he talked about the Greek is is a street level language. It's not literary at all, which I would 
I think you could show pretty clearly that's garbage. Um, uh, yeah. e even from scripture, Paul quotes Acts 17, 28, uh, you know, in, for in him, uh, we live and move and have our being, right? That's a quotation from a Greek poet, Eratus. He lived probably about, uh, probably hundreds of years before Christ, I think uh, fourth century BC. Um, so there were, as far as we know, he was writing this poem in Greek. He was a Greek poet. So I think it's pretty clear that the Greek was a literary language. And the fact that the Bible itself was written as in Greek, it was written to be read, and it was compiled by early Christians in codices in a way that people could read them like a book. So they were literary languages. Um, and it seems that this false view of history kind of helped to uh, spurn him. And he said, I, you know, once I knew this, that there are words in, in the Bible that aren't anywhere else, I could take liberties. I could kind of do what I wanted with the text. You know, I could just kind of make it so, say whatever I wanted to say. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I've got, I've got two issues with that. Uh, one, how do you know that it was never written anywhere else? We, right. we have, <laughs> we have a fraction of what was written at the time. Most things from that era don't survive. Like just because, uh, we don't have anything surviving that happened to use that particular word. How how could you possibly know that it was never written down? That's 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 a bold statement right there. And two, even if a word wasn't written down but used in the in the um, Bible, how does that therefore mean that you can take more liberties? Like I, I don't yeah, think that I don't think that logically follows at all. No, um, <laughs> no, I. I that's like oh, the Bible made up words, therefore I can make up words when trying to translate that's, it that's almost yeah. what it sounds like yeah Oof. yeah no no on that yeah and then our next clip here is going to be more of a theological argument it's really short but it kind of shows what was in his mind as he was translating this or writing it but i think i came closest to having an experience of the inspiration of the holy spirit many many times through this because i'd write something and i think I never knew that before. I just, I never thought of that before. How did that come? And um, enough, enough of that going on that just, I'm, I'm home. I'm, I'm, this is what I was meant to do. Yeah. Yeah. So immediately there's a theological problem there. Um, you have uh, him saying that he's, a, he thought he experienced the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, basically in the same way that the apostles did or the writers of scripture did, you know, that now you can see, like going back to where we we're talking about, about neutrality, people bring their theological baggage to the table when they're translating. And, you know, he's, he seems to be equivocating your imagination with the inspiration of scripture, uh, which, which is a problem. And it, we'll see in some of our examples, in our examples here, um, that this does come out very clearly. He did use his imagination quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I'd also like to point out um, that Brian Simmons, the person behind the uh, Passion Translation, who we'll, we'll also be reviewing, um, also claims that uh, the Holy Spirit inspired him in his translation process. <laughs> so um, what are we to make of places where the passion and the message um, don't follow them, uh, the other? Like, is the Holy Spirit contradict himself? No, yeah. obviously not. Like. There's, there's, there's just major problems with this all around. And I don't know really, what does he mean by street level languages? Is he saying that they were just common or that these were like, uh, 
you know, like hood level languages for lack well, of a better term. I don't as, understand that. As we'll, as we'll go through the message, you do get the sense that he's really trying to sound very colloquial, but ultimately I think it, it fails. He speaks in a way that I don't, I don't know anyone who speaks like that unless it's just like he's wrote it for a very small subset of people who speak that one way. And then at that point, what good, of, what good is it as a, a Bible, you know? It almost um, seems like when you read it, the author is very immature. Yeah. Well, it yeah, sounds it sounds like um, like like some sort of '90s commercial where they're trying to be really <laughs> hip and cool and throwing in like all the all the language. Oh, that's totally rad, you know. It's like <laughs> this is like you're condescending to me right now. This is silly. Yes, absolutely. All right, so now we're gonna talk about the uh, the passion translation. So I'm gonna play a clip, a uh, two minute, forty five second clip from Brian Simmons, who's the lead translator. And he's going to talk about why he did this. And I want you to listen closely to uh, the theology as to why he did it, because he talks about that here. Why was it that he thought that this particular way of translating the Bible was um, was the best? Don't be pulled in different directions or worried about a thing. Be saturated in prayer throughout each day, offering your faith-filled requests before God with overflowing gratitude. Tell him every detail of your life. Then God's wonderful peace that transcends human understanding will make the answers known to you through Jesus Christ. Hi, I'm Brian Simmons. I'm the lead translator for the Passion Translation. The Passion Translation is an attempt to bring God's fiery heart of love and truth to this generation using Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew manuscripts, merging all of those together with the emotion and the truth of God's word and accuracy coming forth. I think you'll enjoy reading the Passion Translation. About every hundred years, the vocabulary of people undergoes a dramatic change. And in this era with modern technology, we find an even more rapid change taking place. In past translations of the Bible, scholars, wonderfully gifted scholars, were trained to focus on other factors beside the emotion of the text. As I study the original manuscripts of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, I have uncovered what I believe is the love language of God, and it's been missing from many modern translations. God refuses to meet us in an intellectual way. God wants to meet us heart level. So we must let the words go heart deep. And that's what we're trying to do with this project, is to bring words that go right through the human soul and past the defenses of our mind and goes right into our spirit. Saying humbly, I have qualifications in that I have translated the New Testament as a co-translator for the Payakuna language. But beyond scholarly level, I think what qualifies a person to be involved in this monumental project of the Passion Translation is not just a exceptional understanding of Greek and Hebrew, but to have a heart for God, to be passionate for his heart. The Passion Translation is for every person on earth to read and experience and encounter God. If you're hungry for God, if you want to know him on another level than what you've been uh, given so far, there's something waiting for you. There's some secrets that he wants to unveil to you and to me. And I believe the Passion Translation can help you discover more of what God has for your life. Okay. 
Hey, Sean, I could see yeah. you making faces over there. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so the implication of a lot of that is that, you know, the church has been left anemic for basically yeah. two, 2,000 years of its existence. I guess he would make the argument that, oh, in the original languages, this was understood. But Well, it's interesting. Uh, he adds Aramaic almost as if that's an original well, language, right? Well, so that's that's the interesting thing. Um, Mike Winger has been doing a series on the the, the Passion Translation and bringing in uh, scholars to talk about it. And I highly recommend anybody who's interested in this watch this. But as he was uh, bringing up clips, when um, Brian Simmons talks about the Aramaic, he's convinced that the original language of the entire New Testament, not not just some books, the entire New Testament was Aramaic. So. He, and he'll go and say uh, things like, you know, we uh, we put the Aramaic uh, manuscripts on the shelf, scholars did, and now they've come back and are realizing just like how valuable these Aramaic manuscripts are. But when he refers to um, Aramaic manuscripts, what he's, he's not saying is that we don't have any original Aramaic manuscripts. There's a translation. I believe it's the Syriac Peshitta, which is a related language to Aramaic. Um, and this this translation was done after the Greek New Testament was uh, was completed. Um, uh, he's he's basically uh, using those as his insight into the Aramaic. So really, what he's doing is um, uh, translating from a translation or using a translation as a commentary. But he's presenting it as no, these are the original, the original. Um, this is the original language that the New Testament was written in. Um, and obviously we would very much disagree. That's not the original language it was written in. Um, right. it's, it's, it's not, it's just, it's, it's nonsense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and even some of the language, the theological language he employs, God doesn't meet us at an intellectual level, but at a heart level, you know, it's, it's very much focused on experience, mm -hmm. emotion. This is God's love language to us. It's like there's this emotion of the text that's there, which uh, I think is problematic, uh -huh. especially when you're, you know, you're talking about a proper theology, a theology proper, I should say, doctrine of God. God is impassable. He doesn't have passions. And it almost seems like God is trying to communicate himself in, in this way. And even on their website, uh, it says the Passion Translation is a modern, easy to read Bible translation that unlocks the passion of God's heart and expresses his fiery love, merging emotion and life-changing truth. So immediately you have theological problems that are underlying this, this translation um, and that try to bring out this false view of God in that, uh, in that particular translation. Mm -hmm. so, and yeah. Jesus himself tells us, you know, you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. Yeah, the mind is not to be disengaged during this process, no. as, as was just implied there, that God only speaks directly to the soul, not through the mind. That is that is incorrect. And um, ultimately, uh, Brian Simmons is a, is a charismatic, and um, you do see that sort of thing in charismatic circles. You know, you want to disengage the mind and just let your spirit do whatever it is that they think is almost going sounds on. Gnostic a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I don't want to broad brush all characters yeah, yeah, yeah. like that, but, yeah. but um, especially knowing the, the circles that Brian Simmons is in, that's definitely a, a thing. And, he's and ultimately by, you know, strong um, word of faith, uh, Bill Johnson, Hillsong church. Yeah. Bill Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately we would, we would recognize these people as preaching a false gospel. And, yes. um, that, that's how people sneak in a false gospel. It's, oh, 
don't don't think with your head disengage your your uh your mind and go with your heart and that is not how we are to look at the bible um paul and his epistles lays out very propositional arguments you, you're not going to feel uh, you might feel the significance of the argument but you're not going to feel your way through an argument you're going to think your way through an argument and that's uh that's correct that's good um we're not to be slaves to our emotions <laughs> right yeah because our emotions change but God doesn't have emotions and he doesn't change. So we can't base a translation off of a God who's like us. Not, not good. All right. And then finally, we look at um, Young's literal translation. Now, this is a 19th century translation. Um, he made the translation from, and I think, is that the TR in the Masoretic text, Sean? Is that yes, yes, it was. Okay. Okay. Uh, he wanted it to be as close to the uh, text as possible, even down to the grammar. He wanted all the verb tenses, moods, articles to be translated as they were in the original. Um, and there is a criticism, and we're going to maybe show that some today, that he's not 100% oral. I mean, if you're translating from English, from Greek, which uh, Greek word order does not necessarily matter, and words can be in different orders, um, but in English, word order does matter. If you're going to have any sense whatsoever, in translating from Greek to um, to English, or even from Hebrew to English, it's not going to be 100% literal. Um, so, and, and it even comes across as kind of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think of the proper word. It comes across as difficult to read at mm -hmm. times and, and kind of awkward. Yeah. So now we're going to dive into some... I did have one comment oh, about yeah. that before you go, go ahead, in. He's, he makes a point very specifically to say, if there's an article, I want it in the uh, the translation. And mm, that doesn't you. even make sense on a, well, uh, at least for Greek. I can't, I can't speak to Hebrew, but at least for Greek, there is one article in Greek. There's not two yeah. like we have in English, the or uh, um, there's only one article and it does not function um, exactly like our two articles do. Um, it doesn't function exactly like the, and it doesn't function exactly like a, so um, to say like, oh, if there's an article, I want um, a corresponding translation in my translation. It's like, what, is, what does that even mean? Uh, an excellent example of this is a lot of proper names in the New Testament will uh, sometimes have an article in front of them. And that's based on the way the, the language is functioning. So oftentimes, if you were to render it somewhat literally, you could say that it was the Paul or the John, you yeah. know? Um, <laughs> yeah. But other times you don't have it. So like we, we, we wouldn't render that into English that way. That, that doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. I mean, you even have the, uh, the issue in John one, one, right. There mm -hmm. is a lack of an article when it's talking, mm -hmm. I think it's before Theos in one of the yes. places. Yeah. And that's actually an argument for the rendering that we have, I believe. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, the lack of an article, because I think it's Jehovah's Witness, or, yeah, yeah, that will use it. Well, it doesn't have an article, so it can't mean, you know, the God, or mm -hmm. it, it's a God. There are plenty of cases where there is no article, and it, it is still yep. definitive. It is, it is the whatever, because right. ultimately the construction, which I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head, the construction in there, you wouldn't want to have a uh, uh, an article there. Otherwise, it would be saying that literally the word was, was essentially the father. Right. Um, it was meant to distinguish the person. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. A little bit of Greek, uh, Greek class for you yep. on the episode. All right. So we're going to dive into some of the actual, uh, some actual passages. We have several here. Um, we're going to start with 
and we're going to do a comparison. So we're going to look at the message, the Young's Old Translation, and the Passion, and discuss some of the differences and uh, maybe poke fun at the message in particular. Um, so we're going to start with John 3, 16 through 18. Um, so in the message, it reads, in the, the side note, the message is weird because the there's not really good delineation with verses. Uh, and I think even in the original one that was printed, um, there weren't verses at all. It was meant to be read like a novel or like a, a story. Um, and don't quote me on that, but I, I do know just from preparing for this episode that verse uh, verse breaks are not done very well in the message. Um, yeah, you're left guessing because he'll he'll yeah. do like a range like, oh, this this paragraph here is verses 13 through 17. Right. So trying to figure out exactly where in it um, it maps to. Um, and then you're like, the wait, is this what it's actually saying? Because he's paraphrased it so much. It's sometimes hard to find out what passage he's talking about. Yeah. But all right. So let's look at John 3, 16 through 18 in the message. This is how God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. So we see some problems here. I mean, obviously the language is strange, but even some theological issues. Um, notice it says in the first sentence, by believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. What does that mean? Is this everlasting life, or is this just an earthly whole and lasting life. What is it being communicated here? He's paraphrased it so much that we don't really know what the heck he's trying to communicate here as it relates to, if I believe in Christ, am I going to have a great life now or am I going to have everlasting mm -hmm. life? No clue. Yeah. So it's very esoteric. Um, and then he talks about um, some of this, I, I think where he talks about being under a death sentence without knowing it. I think that's a theological error. Uh, Romans 1 makes it clear that those who sin know they deserve to die. There is a knowledge of God's punishment there with sin and a knowledge of God himself. Uh, so I think that's being read into the text there. Um, and then the, he talks about Christ being a one-of-a-kind son of God. Uh, I, I don't really know if that's referring to Christ as being the unique son or not, but it's it's still well, not very helpful. So that's going to get into the debate over whether monogamous should be translated as the unique only God, be, only begotten, or the unique one, right. essentially. Um, and he very clearly from this translation comes down on the unique one. Unique one, yes. Yeah. He's one of a kind, yes. Yeah. You want to take the next one, Sean? Yeah, sure. So this is the Passion Translation. Uh, for here is the way God loved the world. He gave his only unique son as a gift. So now everyone who believes in him will never perish, but experience everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to judge and condemn the world, but to be its savior and rescue it, exclamation <laughs> mark. So, so now there's no longer any condemnation for those who believe in him, but the unbeliever already lives under condemnation because they do not believe in the name of the only son of God. Um, so while it's a little bit strange, um, the wording, I will say that at least mostly retains its its orthodoxy here um it's still yeah 
it's still basically saying, you know, for whoever believes in, um, in Jesus, they will be saved. Um, it's a little bit more flowery and, um, you know, gotta add those emotional exclamation points yeah. in there. Gotta, gotta get that passionate. passionate. Gotta be yeah. passionate, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, aside for that, it's not, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. Yeah. It's not a terrible rendering. And they even do, even here, uh, they fall under, they use unique sun. Yeah. So they're falling under that Christ is, yeah. is unique. Yeah. He's one of a kind. All right, then Young's little translation, uh, for God did so love the world that his son, the only begotten, he gave, that everyone who is believing in him may not perish but have life age during. Now, now this is what we were talking about, the awkwardness that can be read. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish it. Yeah. Um, for God did not send his son to the world that he may judge the world, but that the world may be saved through him. He who is believing in him is not judged, but he who is not believing hath been judged already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the second part of the 17 and 18 read pretty well, but it's verse 16 that's that's a little confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost seems like he's putting the cart before the horse here. He like the using the term age during, what does that mean? Um, well, yeah, go so ahead. I wanted I wanted to comment on that because this yeah. is supposed to be a literal rendering. Yeah, of, of the the Greek, right? And I was looking at that. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not how you would even literally render it. So I I, I went to my lexicon, and I believe this is a I believe I took this from BDAG, um, and looked up the Greek word aeonios, right? And um, it has th- uh, three um, three glosses, um, a long period of time, i.e., you could say long ago, um, uh, pertinent to a long period of time without beginning or end, eternal or pertinent to a period of unending duration, so without end. None of those get at, uh, what, did, what did he say? Like age, age during. Age during? So I'm not even sure how you would get that as a literal rendering of the Greek word. And it almost sounds like it's here and now and not carrying on into the future necessarily. Yeah. It's just here and now. It's just age during. It's during this age, during this time. Yeah. So that would be that would be a, a spot where I'm I'm even confused as how you you got that as a literal interpretation. Like if I wanted to make a wooden literal interpretation, I would not use even use that. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not helpful. Mm-hmm. But the rest of that passage is is done, I think, pretty well. And then we have uh, we have the the New King James, which is kind of our uh, not really our standard, but the translation that we use for the show. Uh, which represents probably the more traditional uh, translation for God. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So you can see some similarity, but, Definitely differences on the paraphrastic side. That's the, the starkest contrast here. Then we move on to the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Now, I think in the, we're going to look at the message first. And I was talking to Sean about this. Or I think this is the most bizarre reading that I've seen in the message. In all of my study of it, looking at different passages, this is, I think, the most bizarre. It reads the, the strangest. So this is uh, verses, what do we say, 9 through 13, or it's, it says 7 through 13 in the it's, message. It's 9 through 13. The issue is, once again, it, it says 7 thir- through 13, and it just gives you the paragraph. So you're not exactly sure where things precisely start. Where things but, fall, yeah. Yeah. 
All right. So it says in the message, the world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. Our father in heaven, reveal who you are, set the world right. Do what's best as above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're a blaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of problems with this. Um, number one, uh, after he says our Father in heaven, uh, there's nothing about God's name being hallowed, right? That seems to be omitted. I don't know if that's what he meant by reveal who you are, but that on its face does not mean mm -hmm. the same thing as revering God's name in the earth. No. That seems to be left out. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Um, there's the language also this, in, and maybe this is what Eugene Peterson was trying to get at, you know, with this street language mindset, keep us alive with three square meals, clearly an anachronistic interpretation uh, in American, mm -hmm. you know, we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and throwing mm -hmm. that back into a Jewish mindset, that bad idea. Well, I mean, people will talk about like three square meals a day, but I don't know anyone who really goes around saying like, oh, I, I got my three square meals or whatever. Yeah. Like, like maybe maybe that is a, a colloquialism <laughs> somewhere in America. I won't say for certain, but it, it strikes me as just like very odd. Like I'm trying very hard to speak colloquially, but I don't actually know how to do it. Yeah, and you end up, kind of creating a historical problem that really shouldn't just, mm -hmm. yeah. If he had spoke generally, it would have about meals, you know, about mm -hmm. eating fine, but he had to throw in a, a specific modern, uh, mm -hmm. I guess saying or, or whatever. Also, I'll say that I don't want to push this too difficult, uh, too much, but when it says, uh, give us our day, this our daily bread, bread is like, you know, the bare minimum of sustenance, right? When you have when you say three square meals, that's a little bit above that, right? It's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you could make the argument that that's not really what Jesus is trying to say there, but ultimately, that's that's something I would want to say. He says our daily bread is he is he just communicating us just like the bare minimum for sustenance, or like maybe not the bare minimum, but like enough to get by. Yeah. Um, that's something I would want to know and think about. What when we're to ask when we're to petition God for our daily bread, what what exactly does that mean? And that's gonna be lost in this because three square meals a day, I have a very different connotation with that than our daily bread. Yeah, that, that's a good point. It's almost like he's saying God is going to, we're asking God to give us, you know, these full meals every day. That's not necessarily what Jesus was trying to say. He's going, God is gonna provide the, at the very least, the bare minimum for what we need to be able to mm -hmm. keep going. And that is what Jesus talks about in Matthew six in the same chapter to not worry about tomorrow and God's going to take care of us. Things like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then and that, at the end you have yes, 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 which I think isn't supposed to be his version of amen. Yeah. Uh, which is very strange. Yeah. Cause amen, it's a Hebrewism for, um, this is true. This is true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and yes, yes, yes. Like what, like, I, I guess that's a way of affirming, but again, who speaks like that? Right. <laughs> I, I like 
I don't know. <laughs> I mean, even in our modern, even in the modern day, we say amen, even casually. Yeah. There will be unbelievers yeah. who will be like, can I get an amen? You know, in a joking way. Yeah. Um, or say amen to that, even though they're yeah. not doing it in a, in a religious sense. So, yeah. Well, and ultimately yeah. you're, 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 you're not treating God nearly as, as holy. Like amen has a certain amount of reverence to it. I know people will use it in an irreverent way, but amen, you're thinking in a church context, you're thinking a little bit more solemnly. Yes, yes, yes. Like that's very much colloquial. And I'm not trying to say that all of our, our prayers to God need to be this, this rigid formalness in order to honor him and uh, in order to honor him. But I mean, in this case, it is you're, you're changing things up quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. All right, so that's the message. Now we're going to look at the passion. Uh, it starts in verse 9. Uh, pray like this, our beloved Father, dwelling in the heavenly realms, may the glory of your name be the center on which our lives turn. Manifest your kingdom realm and cause your every purpose to be fulfilled on earth, just as it is in heaven. We acknowledge you as our provider of all we need each day. Forgive us the wrongs we have done as we ourselves release forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Rescue us every time we face tribulation and set us free from evil for you, for you are the king who rules with power and glory forever. Amen. Now, uh, before we go on here, I just thought about something um, from the message where it says, keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. That mm. could be construed in a way that could uh, think that there is some way you could fall out of forgiveness with God. Um, and that's not what the text says. It doesn't say keep us forgiven with you. It says that, uh, we're forgiving of our trespasses. Forgive us of our trespasses. It is yeah. a confession, essentially. This does not render it in that way. Mm -hmm. So just say that in passing. But the passion uh, doesn't render it too bad um, with regards to where it says, may the glory of your name be the center in which our lives turn. I think that's taking some liberties. Um, it's still keeping the fact that the passage is saying that we should pray that God's name is gloried in the earth. Um, but the second part be the center of which our lives turn is not really what the writer is communicating here. Um, and then at the end, I find it strange for you are the king who rules, it, you know, it, I guess you could get something out of that, but it, it says for thine is the kingdom where yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Uh, amen. I, I think it's a little rendering that a little strange, but overall, I, I think it's, it's not terrible. It's not too bad. So I do think that they've subtly smuggled in a, uh, a word of faith idea here when it says, forgive us of our wrongs, forgive us the wrongs we have done as we ourselves release forgiveness to mm. those who have wronged us. In word of faith um, theology, yeah. your, your, your words have power to do things, right? So they can release yep. forgiveness. Um, so I think ultimately what's being smuggled in here is a, a word of faith concept. Um, mm. yeah, so once again, theology matters. What your theology is, is going to, inter uh, affect your, uh, translation. So you want to know that the translators behind your translation actually had a good theology. Yeah, exactly. All right. And then we look at Young's literal to thus, therefore pray ye our father who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name, thy reign come, thy will come to pass as in heaven, also on the earth, our appointed bread give us today. And forgive us our debts, as also we forgive our debtors. And mayest thou not lead us to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because thine is the reign and the power and the glory to the ages. Amen. Now, this is not a really a bad rendering. It's pretty good. Yeah. 
yeah, I don't, I don't find it as, as too bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Out of, out of all three of these translations, if I had to pick one, it, it would be Young's literal. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, but, um, doesn't it doesn't always do it right but uh out, out of the three it's the most consistently good yes yes and, a, and another example of why sticking as close as possible to the original languages is helpful yes exactly the best way to go yep yep all right moving on to psalm 2 8 and for psalm 2 8 i actually do want to read the uh the verse and uh how um how it would be typically read mm -hmm. um Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession, right? Um, so I'll, I'll do Young's literal first. Ask of me and I give nations, thy inheritance and thy possessions, the ends of the earth. So there's obviously something a little bit missing and stilted with that. Um, there's an implied... Um, uh, there's a couple of words that are implied there or that would normally be implied, but he's not bringing it through because um, he wants to stick as literally to the text as possible. So it sounds a little stilted. Um, so that's, that's where you're starting to get into the issue of like, okay, what is this actually saying? You might have to read it a couple of times to get it. Um, going on, uh, I guess I reversed the order for this one. Uh, going on to the passion, ask me to give you the nations and I will do it and they shall become your legacy your domain will stretch to the ends of the earth. Um, so, I mean, it, it basically gets the, the thought across. Um, I don't know if you had any comments about that one, Dan. I don't know but. if I would I would use the word your domain because I think Psalm 2 is a reference to Christ. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, him already being King Jesus. I mean, he didn't just necessarily become king uh, upon his death. He, he is the ruler of the universe. So it could almost give an implication that he's going to get his kingdom uh, at a future date when mm -hmm. he's, we would say he's been King eternally. He, he is the creator of the universe. He is King of the universe. I think it could lead some room for that. It's not the best wording, but I think I understand what he's trying to say. Well, ultimately I would take Psalm two, eight. Well, well, Jesus obviously is God and has eternally um, everything is his. I would take this to be at, um, at uh, Christ's uh, um, ascension uh, or perhaps resurrection that at that point, the son of uh, God as man was also as, as the Messiah given, given the kingdom. I would take it that way, but um, going on to the message. Um, so this has to be verses seven through nine. Cause again, not exactly sure um, where it's, or it's, it's coming in as a paragraph. Um, let me tell you what God said next. He said, you're my son, and today is your birthday. What do you want? Name it. Nations as a present? Continents as a prize? You can command them all to dance for you or throw them out with tomorrow's trash. <laughs> now, that is, <laughs> that is absolutely absurd. Um, for one thing, uh, uh, you are my son. Today I've begotten the has now become you're my son and today is your birthday. Um, which just like, like just makes this entirely. Silly. And that's not what and begotten just, means yeah. in the scriptures with Christ. No. We're not saying that no. he was, he was came from yeah. God at a certain yeah. point in time. Yeah. As a divine, as the divine second person of the Trinity. Yeah. So yeah, you're uh, messing like, with, with the deity of Christ at that point. Uh, I think. Yeah. But then uh, you can command them all to dance for you or to throw them out with the tomorrow's trash. That that almost 
seems like Christ now is a tyrant or like, you know, just like on a, on a whim. Oh, the nations today, they dance for me tomorrow. I, I destroy them. That is not what's meant to be communicated as Christ is our ruler. Christ is our good shepherd. Yeah. He's, he's a it's, good it treats ruler. him like a child almost. Yeah. Like, like oh, he's just yeah. a little kid at a birthday party. What do you yeah. want, Tommy? You know, kind of thing. Yeah. Like I, I, that's absolutely Bad. amazing. I don't, I don't know what, uh, Eugene Peterson was, a. he's, he's dead now, but he's deceased, but he was a, a Presbyterian. I don't know how he viewed this Psalm. If you view Christ. USA. Yeah. Yeah. I, I should clarify PCUSA, but I don't know if he viewed Christ in the Psalm or not, but that is, that is horrendous. <laughs> that is absolutely horrendous. All right. Psalm 10, Psalm 10, four through six. Uh, we have Young's literal. We'll start with that again. Uh, the wicked, according to the the height of his face, inquireth not. God is not are all his devices. Pain do his ways at all time. On high are they judgments before him. All his adversaries he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I am not moved. The genera to generation and generation, not in evil. And this is definitely not rendered very well. It's very confusing. Uh, the word order seems to be strange. So it's, you really have to go, you would have to consult a different translation to figure out what Young's literal is trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, I so will, I don't think it's very helpful. I will note, even though there are these and thous, this translation was made in the 19th century. Um, mm -hmm. So people might be wondering, well, is it a matter of, cause it's just like an older translation. The word order is is different. And I mean, ultimately I think it was first released in like the 1860s. So obviously language has changed a little bit over time, but it's, it's not that old, all things considered. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Then the passion, uh, these arrogant ones, oh, smug and secure in their delusion, the wicked boast saying God doesn't care about what we do. There's nothing to worry about. So successful are they in their schemes and prosperous in all their plans. Your laws are far from them. They scoff at their enemies. They boast at, that neither God nor men will bring them down. They sneer at all their enemies, saying in their hearts, we'll have success in all we do and never have to face trouble. <laughs> I don't know. That's not terrible. Um, no, it's not terrible. Um, yeah, it captures yeah. generally. That's definitely more of a paraphrase. I don't. Yeah. I don't know if I'd say it's really a thought for thought. But. Well, because like the arrogant ones, so smug and secure. That's communicating more than the text is actually communicating there. Yeah. Um, like it, it, it in the NKJV, it is rendered as the wicked in his proud continence does not seek God. Um. So, but like, there's a different idea, and these arrogant ones, so smug and secure, secure. You know. Like, yeah. So, yeah. This is um, why I stick to literal translations. You won't get into <laughs> trouble with people looking at your translation and being like, is that really what it says? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and having consult literal translations to actually figure out what the paraphrase said. Yeah. Uh, all right. Then the, finally, the message uh, The wicked snub God, their noses stuck high in the air. Their graffiti are scrawled on the walls. Catch us if you can. God is dead. <laughs> They care nothing for what you think. If you get in their way, they blow you off. They live, they think, a charmed life. We can't go wrong. This is our lucky year. Yeah, that, I think that that pretty much speaks for itself, I think. Um, <laughs> their graffiti is scrawled, scrawled on, the on the walls. Yeah, yeah. 
That is that is classic definition of a paraphrase right there. I'm going yeah. to com try to communicate what the author is saying in a way that I think it should be rendered um, and just kind of speak in it so generally. You, and actually, he changed what the text actually says. That's nothing about graffiti uh, being scrawled on walls. It, the point is that the wicked are trying to get away from God. They don't like him. They are trying to turn away from him. Um, but he's completely undermined what the text is saying uh, uh, completely in its literal form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, it says uh, the the text says God is in none of his thoughts. Right, the wicked yeah. in his brown countenance does not see God. God is not in any of his thoughts. Yep. Um, so he's 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 not even thinking about God as opposed to this where apparently he's writing graffiti on the wall. Oh, God isn't there. Whatever. Yeah, like, God is dead. Who cares? Yeah. Hmm. Theological problems being theological presuppositions being read into the text. Yep. So now we'll move on to, uh, did you have anything more on that, Dan? No, no, okay. we'll go to our final one here. Yeah, we'll move on to Psalm 23, which is uh, a, a commonly memorized psalm. So hopefully people will uh, will know what this is supposed to be saying. <laughs> All right. So for the message, God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. He have bedded me down in lush meadows. You, you find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. Um, so here, like you have bedded me down. Like, again, nobody, nobody <laughs> speaks like that. Who, I, I'd love to know who he thought was trying, uh, who, who spoke These are like supposed that. to be street languages, remember? Well, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> not, not any street I've ever been on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, it's, it's definitely not very good. I think that the, the next one, the passion, I think oh, is a little oh, worse. Yeah, yeah, I think the passion is a little worse. So it says, Yahweh is my best friend. And my shepherd, I always have more than enough. He offers a resting place for me in his luxurious love. He tracks or he his tracks take me to an oasis of peace near the quiet brooks of bliss. Now, if you want any proof that this translation is about passion, here you go. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, resting place in his luxury. It's like over the top language to communicate some sort of um, emotion yeah. out of the reader. That's what it's trying yeah. to do. It's not just love. It's luxurious love. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it's an oasis of peace. It's not just yeah, peace. Yeah, yeah exactly. Got We've got to throw all these adjectives and, and, and adverbs and make, make sure it's, it's like as, as intense as possible. Yes. Um, also Yahweh is my best friend. Um, yeah. That is not in the original text. And <laughs> I don't think that's, that, that is not what is meant to be communicated when it's the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not walk. Nowhere in there is the concept of God is my best friend that is inserted. And, <laughs> and what is that meant to convey? Like, yeah, like, it's meant to, it's God's love language, Sean. You can't question that. Come on. Oh, I'll question it. I'll <laughs> question, I'll, I'll question whatever this man is saying. And that's ultimately, as I alluded to at the beginning, like, like you're, you're messing around with God's word here. Yeah, like yeah, you were. God, God has spoken yep. to us, and every time somebody does something like this, they're adding to God's word. God didn't communicate that, um, and he he didn't necessarily want to come off as, "Oh, I'm your best friend." That's 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 blasphemous. Yeah, um, like this this is actually this is this is quite serious, and um, we as Christians need to defend the purity of God's word. Um, yes, is that's right. Like. The God's word is not something so trivial and so silly. Oh, I can make it into like I can really bring it out, and make it into God's love language, so people feel passionate about God. 
Um, you're calling into the wisdom of what God has already inspired when you have when you say, I have to make it more passionate so people will respond. It's been sufficient for, depending on the Testament, 2,000 or um, 6,000, however long it's been written, that many years, and it'll, it'll be sufficient without um, you adding all these things to it. Yep, that's exactly right. And then finally, Young's Literal. <clears throat> and then we'll, um, there's some things in the comments I want to address as well. But Young's Little Translation, a Psalm of David, Jehovah is my shepherd, I do not lack. In pastures of tender grass, he causeth me to lie down. By quiet waters, he doth lead me. My soul, he refresheth, refresheth. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So, no problem there. No yeah, problem no, there. no, no. Yeah. Again, if we, if we had to choose out of the three, this one. Yeah, for sure. Yep. But all right. So we're going to I'm going to look at some of the comments here. Uh, thank you for writing in. Let's take a look at some of these. So someone asked a question. Uh, do you think T. Griffith said, do you think eventually the KJV should become obsolete? Is that is that the natural correction of the translations? No. No. So shouldn't become obsolete. I, I will say that um, while Wycliffe's Bible, and this is a 14th century Bible. While Wycliffe's Bible is hard to read, even that's understandable. Like, yeah, the, the, the spelling is completely wonky, but if you sound all the words out, um, you can you can get meaning out of it. So, um, with with the KJV, ultimately, while it is early modern English, so people might have a little bit of a, a difficult time understanding what what's said there. It is not to the point where uh, I would consider it even remotely becoming obsolete yet. Um, you roll a thousand years in the future. Okay, maybe. I'm sure God will provide a, a, another translation by that time. Um, but uh, not at the moment, no. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's... And, and you can even, you know, going back to translation, that might be what the kind of the new King James was trying to help move along. It's like, let's keep mm -hmm. the, the essence of the King James, but put mm -hmm. it in... Way that's more readable, mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't necessarily obsolete the King James. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think it'll ever go away. Mm -hmm. But the language probably will be clarified oh. over time. Even with Wycliffe's Bible, yeah. you could probably clarify it or have a more modern rendering of it that still captures what he was saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's let's put it this way. Um, I initially, when I switched text positions, I was reading the NKJV for a while there. Um, and then eventually, uh, when I learned that it wasn't a pure uh, Masoretic text TR tr uh, translation, I switched to the uh, the um, the KJV. But ultimately, if somebody were actually to produce an accurate translation uh, from the TR and Masoretic texts, then I would I might very well read that a modern one. Uh, there's also the MEV, but like the MEV is like the equivalent of the NIV to TR translations. It's very um, it's very uh, thought for thoughty. So uh, I don't I don't particularly want to use that. <laughs> All right, and and finally here, uh, Doctor Bob said I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the new LSB coming out of Masters. Oh, uh, so I don't know much about it, and it's yeah. not out yet, so I can't really yeah. read yeah. anything from it. So um, obviously, I am I am confessional text. If I were to be of the modern critical text persuasion, I would probably read the NASB. And I know the Legacy Standard Bible is essentially, um, or it's based off the NASB, I think it's 1995 edition. So I would probably have very uh, um, high, well, ignoring the text issue, I would have a very high opinion of it. But in terms of specifics, I just, I don't know enough to, to tell you. 
Um, obviously, John MacArthur is a lot uh, solid in a lot of things, so um, I wouldn't expect it to be a horrendous translation. Um, he's got, obviously, we would have some disagreements with his theology, but in terms right. of ha having a believing worldview, the man does. So, Yeah, yeah. Yep. All right. I think that's it, Sean. I just wanted to address some of those before we, we close out today. But okay. thank you for joining us. Um, hopefully it's been helpful. I know we went kind of long, but uh, we had some fun poking at some of these translations. And, and hopefully some of these principles with Bible translations can be helpful as you seek to use and find a, a solid Bible translation um, in your own uh, personal life. Um, next week, Lord willing, we will have uh, a guest on the show. We're going to be talking about covenant theology. So uh, strap in and get ready. Um, we're going to have a pretty deep discussion about that. Um, but Lord willing, we'll do that next week, next Saturday at 2 p.m. And uh, we thank you for joining us today. Take care. God bless.